Um, okay. Uh, hey, um, uh, I, I'm really excited you guys are here tonight because we have missed three weeks. We had spring break off, and then last week was a weather-associated disaster. And so it's three weeks since our last class, and I thought it was literally going to be my parents and me. So I'm really glad y'all are here. I mean, I like y'all too, um, but I'm really glad there's, a, there's other folks. Uh, let's, let's jump in with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect on uh, your story and your word tonight. We pray, as always, uh, that all other voices but yours would fall aside and that we could hear you clearly uh, through your word, through your Holy Spirit, and through your church. This we pray in the name above all names, that of you, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. So it has been so long since we've been together. Just as a reminder, um, we're doing apologetics. And we talked a little bit about this idea that apologetics comes from the Greek word apology, meaning defense, not like I'm sorry, but defending what you believe. Right out of 1 Peter chapter 3, um, we talked about the difference between apologetics and witnessing, that a witness simply says what they saw, um, and an apologetic attempts to cooperate with the Holy Spirit uh, to persuade people to faith. And we talked about a bunch of different strategies about how apologetics work. And um, the, the ones we ended, the, at the end of this little slide, two big ideas I always wanna remind us about. One is um, what questions is your audience asking and what common ground can you build upon, okay? So with, with that as some background, um, tonight we're gonna talk about the first Christian apologetic. And so um, we're gonna, uh, I'm gonna pick up, if you have a Bible, wanna follow along, I'm gonna pick up in Acts chapter 17. Um, this is a, a passage where Paul is in the city of Athens and he goes to the Areopagus and he preaches this sermon. Uh, and I, I, it, it's kind of long, but I'm gonna read you the sermon because um, I want you to pay attention to when the crowd is with him and then um, what changes, okay? So this is Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, end quote, even as some of your own prophets have said, quote, for we too are his offspring, end quote. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man he has, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Okay, um, so just for a moment, um, think back on that sermon that Paul preaches, and um, this is not a hard question. What, where is the point in that sermon um, where um, there is some conflict with the audience? Low resurrection, right? Um, do, you, do you see before that? He does a great job of establishing common ground, right? He talks about one of their altars, the altar of the unknown God. He quotes their poets, right? Now he's challenging their whole system of worship, of idolatry, right? But he's still building all this common ground. Um, but then he gets to the resurrection, and, and what happens? There are two reactions. What happens? Some people... Yeah, some people don't believe. They scoff. They make fun of it. That's stupid. People don't die and come back to life. And some people... We'll hear you later. Yeah, we'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, it's not clear, but it seems like at that moment, um, maybe there's actually a third group of people. What does a third group of people do? They believe, right? Uh, Dionysus and Demarius, um, and they start following Paul around, right? They become disciples. Okay, um, so what, what I want to suggest, uh, the, the, um, the first apologetic is about the resurrection. Um, and and I, I want to suggest that of the gospel story, the resurrection is the part that requires a decision, okay? So, um, when, when we hear God made the world and, and, and made us for a relationship with him, okay, that's great. Like everybody kind of feels warm and fuzzy about that, right? And when we hear, um, you know, God sent Jesus to teach us about love and how to follow God, well, it seems kind of positive. We like that, and that could be it. We hear that he died on the cross. Okay, well, that, that's fine. We hear he rose again from the dead. Wait a minute. People don't ordinarily raise from the dead. Uh, and now I have to make a decision um, am I going to believe that idea of resurrection or not, right? Um, it is uh, both the, the one verifiable thing in the gospel story and the one thing that causes people the most trouble in the gospel story, right? There, there's no way to verify from an outside perspective whether or not Jesus died for our sins, right? You just have to take it on faith because you can't see the sins on him on the cross. Um, but whether he rose again from the dead is something that we can verify. Are we together? Okay. Uh, so um, we just read that Acts passage. Um, this gets, as, as a side, uh, as a little bit of an excursus, but this gets to, I think, an important distinction between our tradition, the Jewish tradition, and most, maybe not all, but most other religions. So most religions are pretty subjective. Um, what I mean by that is they're established on something subjective. For example, did Buddha experience nirvana under the Bodhi tree or not? Well, only Buddha knows, right? Because Buddha experiencing nirvana is not something that you can tell if he got or not, right? You're not inside his head. You don't know what happened. Um, did the angel Gabriel talk to Muhammad? Well, we don't know, right? Only, only Muhammad knows that because none of us were there. And no one else was there. And no one's claiming to be present when that happened. Um, but Judaism and Christianity are a little different, right? Because they're predicated on these big ideas that are not as subjective as they are objective, right? 
the Jewish belief is that there was a time when the Jews were slaves in Egypt and the whole country of Egypt was devastated as their God rescued them from Egypt and set them free. Right? Um, whether or not you can point to exactly when that happened, they're saying it's a historical event, not just somebody's personal experience. Right? Uh, the Christian faith is predicated on this idea, right? that there was this man, Jesus, who died and rose again from the dead. And that's not just, I feel like he raised, that's like this historical event that could be proven or disproven. Are we together? Okay, so this actually is a, a, a great thing and a challenging thing, right? It's, it's great to have a faith that's rooted in some objective historical events. And it's challenging because if they're not true, then our faith is a problem, right? Um, from a historical perspective, there's not a lot of argument about the crucifixion. Right? So there's always somebody crazy who says something, but most historians, Christian and non-Christian, agree that there was a man named Jesus, that he lived when the Bible says he lived, uh, and that he was killed, and probably even the non-Christians would say crucified, right, around the time we think he was crucified in Jerusalem or on a hill outside Jerusalem. Okay? I don't know any credible historians that don't believe that. The, the historical question is what comes next? All right, so um, uh, let's, let's play a game. Um, and I want you to answer this question. Um, if there is no resurrection, so let's just stop coming from a Christian perspective for a minute and just be objective. Um, if we somehow knew the resurrection was not a true story, um, what consequences would that have for the Christian faith? Okay, there would be no Christian faith. Why? But couldn't I just say, I agree, but I'm going to argue anyway. Um, couldn't I just say, yeah, but he's such a good guy and he had all these good ideas and we can still kind of be Christians if we just follow his morals and his teachings? Can I say that? Okay, okay, right. Yeah, so just saying it doesn't make it true. How does that distinguish from any other great teacher in history? Yeah, okay, all right. Or not so great teacher. Or not so great teacher. Okay, all right, okay. Good, yeah, I want to come back to that. I think that's important, but I agree with, I agree with everything you're saying, right? Um, scripture talks about this, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, um, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins, right? He says, um, we, are mis we are guilty of misrepresenting God. It's not just that, like, we're ignorant. We're actually pointing people away from God, right? So let's say for a moment that the Jewish faith is, is, is uh, you know, up to the point of Jesus, the Bible is true, and then Christians just made up this whole Jesus resurrection thing. We're actually leading people away from the one true God by having them worship Jesus, right? So uh, if, if there is a resurrection, we're not just misguided. We're bad, right? We're doing something bad. Um, and um, Jesus was a bad guy, right? And this is, you kind of alluded to this, Sheldon, but I think this is a really important thing. If there's no resurrection, it's not just that Jesus was a nice teacher with some nice ideas. He's actually a bad human being, right? Um, this is an old argument. You guys have heard... Um, the ad deus ad homo malus or the liar lunatic lord argument okay great then i can tell you um so uh 
the, the Latin uh, deus abnormalis means either God or bad man, okay? And it's an old, old Christian idea. C.S. Lewis expands upon it. He has a third category. He says, um, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Then in a nutshell, the argument is that anybody that said and, and um, believed the things that Jesus said and believed, because um, he doesn't just say, love your enemies. He also says, you know, the Father and I are one, right? And, um, you know, it allows people to worship him as God. The, uh, anybody who says what Jesus says either is crazy, right? Or is like evil, like, like a cult leader trying to convince people to follow them instead of follow the real God, or actually is God, right? There's, there's no room for him being a nice guy. Uh, and so this is what, what Lewis says. He says, oh gosh, I can't even read it. Um, I, I'm trying to get at the saying that really foolish people say about Jesus. Um, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So simply, Lewis says, hey, if you believe that Jesus said any of the stuff he said in the Bible, right, you can't just pick and choose which things you think he said. And if you think he was not really God, then he's not really a good guy, right? It's not good to tell people to stop worshiping the one true God and worship you instead. Um, does that make sense? Uh, really a simple idea, actually, right? He's, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He's got to be one of the three. Don't we all have a choice? Say more. Well, we, obviously, we accept him as Lord and, and Savior. Right. We could make the same. We have the same opportunity, if you will, to make those other choices. Sure. Right. So, I mean, what's the that's been having for centuries, which is the idea that like, let's just accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, right? Um, you know, and this would have been, Thomas Jefferson would have made this argument, right? Um, he, look, his moral teaching is great. Let's get rid of all the religious stuff because it doesn't make sense to us. We don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe in this God. He didn't do miracles, but it's some really good moral ideas. And Lewis's point is, well, you know, either, either he's immoral or he's moral in God, but he can't be not God and moral, right? Okay. Um, so we, we, we explained a little bit about why the resurrection um, not, not being true matters. Now let's do the opposite. If the resurrection is true, why does that matter? What would that mean if Jesus really did raise from the dead? Proof in the the proof is in the pudding. Okay. Proof of what? Okay. That he is who he says he was. Okay. That he is who he says he was. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. I mean, on some level, right? If we, if we want to believe what he said, we got to believe he rose. And if he didn't rise, we shouldn't believe what he said. 
I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Um, so Jesus claims to be God and he rises again from the dead. Probably God. Nobody else has done that sort of thing before. Uh, Jesus claims um, to be a sacrifice for our sins. Um, how do we know if it worked? Well, it's a nice idea that you're going to die for our sins, but until you come back from the dead, we have no idea if that worked or not, right? I could say I'm going to die for your sins and, and get nailed to a cross, and does it make it true? No. How do we know it's true? Well, he came back from the dead. That doesn't normally happen, right? So uh, the proof's in the pudding, right? The proof's in the pudding. Um, I don't even like pudding, but that's where the proof is, apparently. Um, and, and then really simply, right, if the resurrection is true, we ought to do what Jesus said. Right? I mean, the, the whole thing. I mean, if if, if the most important, difficult to believe thing is true, then all of it should be true, right? Are we together? I think we're already together. Okay, good. Um, so, so then the, the really critical question and the question that Paul asks people um, in Athens to believe, uh, the same question that Peter asked in his first sermon and on the day of Pentecost, people believe, is, you know, do we believe the resurrection happened? So again, I want to think about this from a historical perspective. Um, if... Um, Hypothetically, um, how could just to, again stop pause your faith for a minute? Um, how could we ever historically disprove the resurrection? What sort of things could happen that could disprove that Jesus rose from the dead? Any ideas? Hypothetically, impossible. what's that? It's impossible. Okay, so people don't raise from the dead. Okay, so one argument could just be that that's not a thing that happens, right? Okay, great, great. What else could disprove on a historical level that there was a resurrection? It's an alternative book to the, you know, the teachings of the New Testament that contradicted everything about it. Okay, great. So there could be some kind of written documentary evidence that, that proves somehow there wasn't a resurrection. Okay, great. What's the, what's the most basic way you prove that he didn't rise from the dead? They wouldn't see him again. Okay. No, nobody would have seen him again. No, so that we, we could prove that, again, maybe with a document or something that no one ever saw him after he died. Right? Find his bones. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Almost too easy, right? But like, if we can find his body, then he's not raised. Right? I mean, this is actually really helpful because it's a really simple... 100% effective way to prove there's no resurrection, right? If you pull out his dead body, I'll stop being a Christian. Like tomorrow, today, right away. Because at that point, it's a lie. Right? And I want to believe a lie. So um, this is really helpful because, um, we'll talk about this in a minute, but, but what never happens in the um, history of the church, but especially in those first, you know, five, ten years, or first, remember the first Christians become Christians 40 days after Jesus rises from the dead, right? The, that's when Pentecost happens and 3,000 people are baptized. Um, so it's 40 days after Jesus was killed, or 43 days after Jesus was killed, um, and the people that really wanted to stop his movement murdered him. They're still all in power, right? No one's been ousted in the last 43 days. So when 3,000 people start saying, hey, we saw Jesus and he's alive, what would you do? Well, you'd go to the grave and you'd bring the dead body out and you'd say, he's not alive. Like, he's right here, right? Uh, isn't that pretty obvious? 
it's weird that it never ever happens, right? It's weird that there's never a record of that ever happening because it's the easiest way in the world to end this crazy Christian movement. Right? Just show that it's dead body. Okay, hold that thought. Um, how? Let's do the reverse uh, again. Not not from a faith perspective, but just from an intellectual perspective or historian. Um, how could the resurrection theoretically be proven as a historical event? Is there anything we could do to prove this really did happen in history? Would somebody trust the witnesses of the women that uh, had the tomb opened or owned it open? Okay. Great. So that's a really good point about the witnesses of the women. We're coming back to them because they're an important part of the story, but that's great. So the witnesses of the women are interesting. Yep. Mm -hmm. From a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. What else? The recording that he literally appeared to X number of people, 500, 3,000, you know. Okay. And that's recorded not necessarily in scripture, but that's recorded Great. in history. Great. So um, one helpful proof would be if lots of people saw it, right? So if one guy sees it or one woman sees it, cool, but like people see crazy things. But the more people that see Jesus alive again, and if they're reliable witnesses, the better, right? Okay, great. Love it. Okay, just think hypothetically for a minute. Imagine that um, you know, again, just imagine you, you lived 2,000 years ago and Christian stuff hasn't happened yet. And you're just a regular person wandering around and you hear the story about this guy who died and came back to life. Um, what do you think the side effects, like what do you think would happen in the world because of this guy dying and coming back to life? I'm asking a question I already have an answer for. Let, let, me, let me tell you what I think would happen, okay? I think, or let's just say it happened today. Let's say today, um, somebody famous like uh, Aaron Rodgers um, was killed, and then three days, and everybody knew he was dead, but he was just dead. Uh, and days later, not hours later, he came back to life. And everyone was like, oh, Aaron Rodgers is alive. Here's what I think would happen. I think a ton of people would be like, holy moly, again, this is pre-Jesus, nothing like that has ever happened before. We want to learn everything we can about him. We're going to be obsessed with him. And some people are going to say, I don't care what I see. I'm not going to believe it. That stuff never happens. Uh, and there would be some kind of like, I don't know, massive movement of Aaron Rodgers fans that would rise up. And um, it would be this crazy organization of Rodgers Resurrection, the Rogers Resurrection writers, right? Um, that's exactly what happens in history, right? It's exactly what happens. There, this has never happened before. And all of a sudden, this huge movement springs up out of nowhere. And they start saying, hey, this guy's alive. And some people believe and don't believe. Um, but it, this thing grows like crazy. There's this massive global impact, right? Um, so uh, Keller says... Um, the resurrection puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. You must then come up with a historically feasible alternative explanation to the birth of the church. Right? So this is, I think, um, the, the strength of the first apologetic, right? That um, 
why the heck is there a church today? Why the heck did people believe Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? Why did all of that stuff happen in the early church if there's no resurrection? What motivated that to happen? Are we together? Does that kind of make sense? Um, and, and, and there are answers to that question, um, but Keller's point and my point is um, the most obvious answer, the most clear answer seems to be, well, if it happened, then this is the result I would have expected. I would have expected something like a church to emerge and people to go crazy about it and, and tell the story everywhere and it to grow. And um, so why would that have happened if there wasn't a resurrection? That's the problem that the non-believer has to answer, okay? Um, and I think there are a lot of answers for that, but all of them are terrible. <laughs> I'm biased. Um, anybody want to come up with one? Yeah, Kari. Question. Yeah. Um, so Jewish people believe Jesus was here, mm -hmm. but that he was at the Savior. Right. So what's their basis for not believing? Well, I want you to try to tell me that. Um, so, uh, yeah, Jewish people um, who didn't become Christians, so many, obviously all the early Christians are Jews, right? Um, but, but also there's more Jews that don't become Christians than other do. Um, Romans don't believe. Um, today, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people out there that don't believe, right? Um, so the question is how, I mean, I, I, some people have never had this logically presented. Okay, sure. We have never thought about it clearly. But, but if someone did think about it clearly, what argument might they give to say, oh, this is why the church got started. This is why all these people started believing that he was raised from the dead. Any ideas about like what argument a non-believer might give to explain the sudden rise of the church? Well, if they're prophesized for centuries or millennia. Okay, good. Then I can counter that argument in my head, but there's also been my thought growing <laughs> This is the guy. No, 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 this is the guy. No, this is the guy. Okay. So I'm just arguing myself out of that. No, but that's great. Uh, it's a, it, you, had, you, had a, you had a point counterpoint, but let's stay with your point because I, I've heard people say that plenty of times. Plenty of times I've heard, heard people say, well, the church got started because they wanted to believe, right? They wanted to believe Jesus was the Messiah. Right. They wanted to believe for thousands of years. And so they were sort of, not only did they want to believe, but they had this whole biblical tradition the Old Testament, um, that like sort of prepared them to believe. Yeah, okay, great. That's two answers, I think, that I've often heard people mention. Okay, what else? Well, like longing for a sense of community and a reason to like band together and have something that no one else has had before. Love it, love it. Okay, I mean, I, I like what you're thinking. I don't agree, but I like what you're thinking. Um, so longing for community, longing to have... Um, some closeness that no one else had before. Um, and, and can I add to that, you know, this is this movement is begun by people that were following Jesus. So maybe they just like miss that community that they had last week when he was still alive and they want it back, right? Okay, great, love it. Kari, you had your hand. Um, using your Aaron Rodgers example, that like really happened. I would be like, well, he probably he couldn't have been really dead. And where was he hiding for three years? Great, great. Okay, so one argument might be maybe he didn't actually die, right? Maybe um, he faked his death or, or they botched it or something. Okay, great, excellent. Any other, those are really, you guys are doing a great job thinking critically about this. Any other possible explanations? 
I have I have a couple written financial. down. Oh, good. Financial. Ooh, financial. Yeah, they might make a little money. Okay, fantastic. Good. It's well, sorry, never mind. I listened to a whole thing on LDS Church recently, so uh -huh. I kind of, uh -huh. which is more recent history with a similar, you know, maybe with financial implications of some of those things. So. Right, right. The Church of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church um, uh, is one of those subjective things where one guy had a vision and decided he was translating these tablets, but no one ever saw them or and then all of a sudden it had some positive benefits for a lot of people for a while. Um, so yeah, well, a great reason to start a religion is to make money. Yeah, I mean, not a morally great reason, but it can be a, can be a lucrative way to do it. Okay, good. Uh, I'll add a few. Um, um, I've often heard people say they're just gullible, right? People back in the old days would believe anything. They weren't scientists, they're just stupid, right? Um, uh, we mentioned somebody else said the disciples desperately wanted to believe. Um, Sometimes we feel like our loved ones are still just with us, right? Like I often hear people say, I feel like my loved ones are with me. Maybe that's what they meant. Um, um, there's been a lot of really interesting research about mass delusions, right? And, um, and even mass visions, right? Where a group of people see something that probably is not there, but they're all convinced they saw, right? That does happen. Maybe it was a mass vision or a mass delusion. Um, and the thing I hear most often is maybe all of the things that you guys mentioned over time combined um, to morph into this idea of a physical resurrection, right? Maybe they didn't believe it back then, but by the time the Bible shows up hundreds of years later, they started, they convinced themselves something that Peter and Paul and James and John and Mary didn't really believe, right? Okay. Um, so let's talk about those a little bit um, because... Um, I think all of those are ultimately very unsatisfying. You guys are going to have to help me remember you had some good ideas too. I want to make sure I get to those and only forget your good ideas, like the fake the death or financial or um, the Bible inspired them, et cetera. All right. I, I want to start with the, the last one I mentioned, though, um, the idea of it evolving over decades. Um, and I want to start with this because this is the easiest thing to disprove. Right, so the idea that, well, they didn't originally think that, but they convinced themselves later. Um, Non-Christian historians and Christian historians would date the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, between 60 and 100 AD. Mark earliest, probably in the 60s, John latest in the 90s, um, but all of them are in that window, right? So if Jesus dies around 30-something AD, maybe 33 or 30 AD, um, the first Gospel is written 30 years after he died. Okay, um, but the oldest place where we hear about the resurrection isn't in the Gospels, but in the letters of the New Testament, because the letters of the New Testament mostly are older than the Gospels. Okay, so again, like non-Christian scholars and Christian scholars would look at First Corinthians chapter, uh, the first letter to the Corinthian church as one of the oldest um, pieces of writings in the New Testament. Right? People debate what the absolute oldest letter is but it's one of the oldest letters, okay? Um, and it was written 15 to 20 years after Jesus was raised from the dead, okay? Uh, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 um, talks a lot about the resurrection. In fact, it's um, a passage that we've quoted a couple of times already tonight, and Jim referenced obliquely when he mentioned the uh, 500 people that saw the resurrection of Jesus. So um, 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead, people are writing saying, um, we, we have seen him, 
right? Here's the problem. Um, so what happened 15 years ago? Uh, this is 2020. So 20, uh, 2005. I have no idea what happened in 2005. Uh, oh, I know what happened in 2005 that was important. I'm pretty sure um, that that was the year I graduated from seminary, right? Um, I got married. You got married in 2005. Yeah, I, I can't forget it. Okay, that's really important. Um, so marriages and graduations, right, and all these things are pretty easy to go back and check. How do you go back and check? Well, is there anybody that saw Herb got, get married? Lois did. That's good. I'm glad you were there. Um, uh, was there anybody that saw me walk across the stage? It's, it's hard to go back and say, hey, no, I did this thing that was very public um, when there are people around that saw it and know it whether it happened or not, right? Um, even more so if you're a public figure, right? I'm, I'm, um, I can't think of any like actors. Uh, Nicholas Cage um, was, was acting in 2005, I'm sure. I don't know what movies he was in. Uh, but if you went back and said, no, Nick Cage didn't do any movies in 2005, we can prove that pretty clearly, right? There are people that saw Nick Cage movies and they can say, no, I was in a theater. <laughs> he did a movie, right? So uh, if 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead, people started running around and saying, um, oh, yeah, they, this, this was a cool story. He rose from the dead. And all the eyewitnesses knew it wasn't true. They would simply say, no, that's not true. We don't believe you. Right? That's nonsense. I was there. Um, and for an event that was you know, not massive, but pretty significant, hundreds and hundreds of people knew about him and knew he died, it's pretty hard to convince all of them um, that what they saw wasn't true, right? So eyewitnesses are a problem um, for the made it up over time story. Um, the, the other related issue um, is, you know, well, maybe they're just gullible. Maybe they're just, uh, you know, unscientific people that don't believe anything. Um, and, and the question is, did people in the ancient world distinguish fact from fiction? Right? And, and, and of course the answer is yes, right? Um, being unscientific doesn't mean being stupid. And, and we've discussed before in here, you know, I, there was a conversation once that I think it was N.T. Wright or Tim Keller or somebody was having um, about the resurrection. And the guy said, hey, well, I know people don't raise from the dead, as you said, Kari, because science tells us that. And Tim Keller said, are you telling me that you think 300 years ago before, you know, the modern scientific revolution, people thought that you didn't stay dead? No, like death has been a normal part of human condition forever, right? And nobody has thought, oh, yeah, sometimes you just pop back to life. Like that's not a thing anyone believes, right? You don't have to be scientists to know that. Um, uh, on this issue of sort of the gullible um, will believe anything, uh, you mentioned an interesting point earlier, Shirley. You mentioned that um, the first witnesses are women. Why was that significant? Great. Yes. And less brave to come forward with that. Right. Would women be less believable? The answer is yes. Um, in Jewish culture, women are not legal witnesses. So, like, you literally, if um, if there was just a bunch of women and me in here, and I stole all your purses and ran out the door, and there were ten of you, the ten of you could not take me to court. And prove that I was wrong in a Jewish in, in an ancient Jewish culture because none of you are legal witnesses. It'd be your word against mine, and only I'm a witness, so I'm right. Okay. So um, the fact that women are the witnesses of the tomb is 
terrible. It's just terrible, right? Um, the only reason you put that in there is because it's what happened, right? Because it sure doesn't make for a good story. So if you're making up a story later, if you're trying to convince gullible people, these are not the details you include, right? Um, uh, we've already mentioned this, but as a no-brainer sort of thing, if the tomb wasn't empty, um, why didn't they just bring the body out? Why didn't somebody bring the body out? There's an interesting, yeah, go ahead. Is there any evidence that the Romans believed it or, or denied it or had any comment on the whole affair? Thank you for asking that question. Um, so if you've got a Bible and we'll look at Matthew chapter 28, um, there's a really interesting passage in Matthew chapter 28. Um, and it's one of those passages that normally I think, especially on Easter Sunday or whatever, we just sort of skim past, right? Because there's really cool stuff in Matthew 28. There's, you know, the women at the tomb and the angel and they see Jesus. And at the end of Matthew 28, we have them on the mountain in Galilee and Jesus says, authority in heaven has been given to me and go and make disciples and it's yay rah rah um but in, in the middle there um verses 11 through 14 um we hear about what happened to the guards at the tomb okay while they were going some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened after the priests had assembled with the elders they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers telling them you must say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Okay, this is really interesting for a couple of reasons. So it gets to your question about what about the Romans a little bit. And it gets to your question earlier about maybe they faked it, right? Maybe he wasn't really dead or maybe um, they stole the body, right? Um, what is the, how do I ask this question? Um, what is the assumption in, in that little part of the story um, that makes that part of the story make sense? So, uh, okay, I, I want you to think of this not as a Christian, but as an historian, okay? If you're an historian and you read those verses, um, which is about the, the, um, the chief priests paying the soldiers to lie about the body being stolen. Okay. Um, there's a Christian motivation for telling that story, right? What's the Christian motivation for telling that story? Well, because it tells us at the end, they're still telling the story today that the body was stolen. So the Christians might make up this story to explain the rumor that the body was stolen, right? Everybody together? Um, what does the body is stolen rumor um, What's that based on? What needs to be true for that rumor to have legs? There was reason to believe this was a special person. We don't want to get out to change the way things are. Okay, good. So there's some reason to believe this is a special guy and we don't want the story to get out. Um, but what, again, you said this earlier, even more basic than that. Like, the body was never found. Right. Right, yeah. right, exactly, all of you. Yes, good, collectively. Um, so if there was a body, they don't have to make up a story about the body being missing. And just as a historian, the Christians don't have to make up a story about explaining the story they made up about why the body is missing, right? If the body's there, they just pull the body out. So even if you don't believe this, what the gospel is saying, 
obviously everybody on every side of this thing believes the body is missing. Are we together? Yes. Right? The, the people pro-Jesus, the people anti-Jesus are all in agreement that there is no body. Um, okay, so this is really, it's really fun for me, right? You, you, you get in this a little bit and you start saying, all right, um, uh, where the heck is the body? Right? If we don't believe, where the heck is the body? So one possibility, uh, Kari mentioned earlier, maybe they didn't kill him, right? Maybe they just buffed it. Um, and, and this happens sometimes in the real world, not the real world. I mean, the modern world, this is the real world. Uh, in the modern world, there are times where somebody dies and we've heard crazy stories, right? About like in the morgue, you know, five hours later, the mortician walks in and the person's breathing, right? And you freak out. Um, so that does happen. Um, What's different about the story of Jesus? Well, there's two things that are different, right? The first is um, this isn't a, a weird freak accident, but a very public execution um, by a, a, a government that's very good at killing people, right? They're very good at killing people. Uh, they've been doing it for a while. Um, it would be really strange if, for example, there was a guillotine and they chopped off somebody's head and they came back five hours later and he was still breathing, right? Or if you went to the electric chair um, and came back five hours later, and there was, that would be a, a, a big surprise, right? Um, so this is not a weird freak accident. This is a public execution by people that are great at killing you. The other thing that's really important is Jesus doesn't come back five hours later. He comes back three days later, right? Um, and, and, and that difference is huge. Uh, yeah, maybe he was horribly wounded, right? Maybe, maybe, they took him off the cross and he was in a coma and he came to in the cave. And then what? And then after being horribly wounded and having puncture wounds in his hands and feet and side and bleeding all over the place and not breathing for a long time, he comes to in a cave with no oxygen and he spends three days there and then he gets up and has a party. That doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so, and, and, and this is the, the ongoing challenge, right? Then he comes to the disciples. He doesn't seem like he's in pain or agony, he seems happy and great. Um, maybe they stole the body. Okay. Um, the problem with stealing the body is um, what the Christians do later, right? So what happens, anybody know what happens to um, Peter or Paul or James or John or any of those early Christians at the end of their lives? They... What's that? Some of them had the same thing happen. A lot of them have the same thing happen to them, right? Um, even upside down. Even upside. Peter gets crucified upside down as the tradition. Um, Paul is beheaded. Can, can we back up to the Romans a minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to me that if, if they would have wanted to know for sure, yes or no, grave pros were still there. Man couldn't roll the stone away from the outside, right? From the inside. Right. I mean, yes, he could, but right. you know, he, why didn't why didn't they further investigate? I mean, it would have been the the government should have investigated. Yeah. The government should have gotten involved. It's almost like they left something else. Wait, are you yeah. telling me the government made a mistake? That's hard to believe. Um, so still going on the guy. Sorry, I was snarky there. Um, no, I I think uh, yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, uh, remember the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, the, the normal way you die in crucifixion is asphyxiation, right? So um, you're, you're nailed up, um, blood loss, 
Um, but what other happens is you can't hold your body up anymore, and then you can't get a breath, right? You can't, and your lungs are filling with fluid, and you can't breathe. And so you push up on your feet to breathe, which is incredibly painful because they're nailed in, right? And you just keep doing that until you run out of ability to do it anymore. Um, Jesus does that until he dies. Um, and then um, the guards want to come along to make sure everybody's dead because they're Romans, they're thorough. And so they either break your legs or they just stab you in the heart. And because he's already dead, they stab him in the heart. That also is usually fatal, right? Ordinarily being stabbed in the heart with a spear through your side is fatal. Um, uh, one of the interesting details in some of the gospels is that um, when they do that, um, they oh, blood and water come out, not just blood. Um, and I don't know all the science, but there's a, a, a component of the filling up of fluid that happens when you're asphyxiating that explains why some water comes out as well. Um, uh, the guy's dead. Right? Uh, and um, th this idea of stealing the body um, doesn't make a lot of sense if everybody who tells that story then dies in the telling of it, right? And, and this is really an important part of the early church. Um, they don't get rich. Right? It would make sense if there were some advantages to telling this lie. Right? Um, but there are some big disadvantages to telling this lie. So as we read the stories of the early Christians, they're all really poor. And all the leaders, almost to a man and a woman, get executed or at least imprisoned um, for extended periods of time. And um, that just gets worse as time goes on, right? Not better. It becomes harder and harder. Um, but if, if you wanted to perpetrate a lie that you knew was a lie, right? Now, it's, it's one thing if you're, you're hoodwinked, right? But if you went in and stole the body, you know it's not true, right? Um, and a missing body is not the same thing as a walking, talking, breathing, resurrected person, right? So if I'm going to go out and say I saw a resurrected person and I know it's not true, okay, I might do that for my own advantage. But am I going to do that when it gets me killed, when it gets my family killed? When it gets all my friends killed, are they all going to keep doing it? Are all of us going to perpetrate that lie? Nobody's going to break down and say it's not true. It's hard to believe, right? Um, so again, this idea that the, um, the the body is missing, we need an explanation. Um, and it doesn't make sense that he didn't die. And it doesn't make sense that the body was stolen. And it doesn't make sense he did it for their own financial gain. Why the heck did this church start? Right? Um, Oh, we just talked about that. Oh, well, how does a grand lie mesh with the core teachings of Jesus that they passed on? Right? So it's interesting that so much of Jesus' teaching is about, you know, don't bear false witness and don't even make a promise, but just always tell the truth, say yes or no, and let your yes be yes or your no be no. Why would you put that into a story that's all based on a massive lie that you all know is a massive lie, right? Kind of weird. Um, okay. Um, how about the wish fulfillment, right? How about that idea that uh, they just really wanted to believe it was true so bad, right? That they missed that community that they had. And they had all these Bible verses talking about the, the Messiah. And they just wanted to believe it was true. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Um, the, the first is that, uh, well, uh, they're cultural problems, right? Um, from the Greek side of sort of the philosophy and thinking of the time. And remember, there are a lot of Greek Jews, right? Jews that have sort of um, assimilated into Greek culture. Uh, the, the Greeks primarily, no, no, no one's exactly the same, but primarily were very passionately anti-physical, right? So think about Plato, right? 
Plato's whole idea uh, and his philosophy is that there's one God, that that God made um, this world of ideas, but that the physical world is, is, a, is kind of a failure. The physical world isn't very good. And your job is to rise above the physical world, right? To have a soul that will leave your body and ascend into the realm where God is. Right? Um, for the Greeks, the idea that you might come back to life in a body was bizarre, right? This was the opposite of their whole philosophical system, right? No, like you have a soul, you overcome your body, you defeat your body, you surpass your body. You don't get your body back after you're dead. That would be awful. Right? So just from a, a Greek philosophical perspective, the resurrection doesn't make any sense. Um, the Jews love the idea of resurrection, okay? Um, and it does live in a few places in the Old Testament, especially like the end of the book of Daniel. But for the Jews, the resurrection is a very clear idea um, that there will be the day of the Lord. There will be this massive end-time event, right? The whole world will be brought back in a right relationship with God. Everyone who ever died will come back to life at once, and there will be a final judgment, right? And then we get to live with God forever or not. And, and that idea um, lives a little bit in the Old Testament, and then it's really established intervening time, right, between the Old and New Testament, um, that, you know, the resurrection is everybody. We all come back. You can read the end of chapter Daniel, uh, in chapter 12 in the book of Daniel, if you want to kind of hear a little bit of that story. Um, what does not exist in the Jewish thinking is that one guy might come back. And again, that would be as anathema to them as the idea of a Greek person having a resurrected body, right? It's everybody. It's the whole world coming back to life. And a final judgment. It's not one guy gets up and walks around again. So this isn't something that they were led to believe. It's something that they expected. Part of the reason why so many people who didn't see it struggle with it is because it didn't match their expectations of Messiah. Right? And we, we hear about this all the time. They thought Messiah was going to be a great king. They thought he was going to overthrow the Romans. They thought he was going to establish a new kingdom of Israel. Uh, they thought it'd be a you know the Mount of Olives and the raising of the dead, and none of that stuff happens. So how can this be, how can Jesus be our Messiah, right? Um, so uh, the point here is um, there's no mental framework that already exists that could reinforce um, the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite, right? That what they already believe would lead them to think the resurrection is not true. So we tend to make up things that fit with what we already believe. We don't tend to make up things that are completely anathema to what we believe. Um, okay. Holy smokes. Um, oh, I, I, this is worth mentioning because um, sometimes people say, well, you know, they just wanted him to be the Messiah so bad they convinced him. Jesus is not the first guy to claim to be Messiah. I mean, he's not the last guy to claim to be Messiah either, right? I mean, David Koresh thought he was the Messiah as, as far as I can remember. And so did Joseph. I mean, not Joseph Smith didn't think he was Messiah, but he thought was the prophet. Um, people have thought that a lot of times. Um, the problem is usually when they die, we give up on them, Right? Uh, and, and this is what happened historically. There were plenty of people before Jesus who said, I'm the Messiah. And many people believed in him until they died. And then never once did anyone ever say, oh, then they got back out from the dead and now we're believing them again. Right? Because that was insane. Nobody thought that way. Um, N.T. Wright says, uh, in all those cases of Messiah, uh, not one single time do we hear the slightest mission of disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. 
Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape uh, arrest themselves had two options, give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming the original leader was alive again was simply not enough, unless of course he was. Um, okay, uh, just a, a couple of th more things, because I, I know I'm running out of time, but a couple more things I think are helpful in this conversation. Um, this idea that uh, Jesus rose from the dead, um, that he died for our sins and then came back to life um, is an idea that shows up dramatically quickly. Normally in the development of religious thought, it takes a while for an established religion to, to sort of change, right? Um, but this sort of seems like it shows up whole hog overnight. I mean, like the next 43 days later, they're preaching the streets, okay? It's a big change to go through in 43 days uh, from we think this guy might throw off the Romans to we think he died for our sins and rose again um, from the dead. It's hard to imagine anything short of him rising from the dead and telling them that that would convince them to change their thinking so quickly, right? Um, this idea of two comings, right, of Jesus coming once and then coming again, again, not something they ever believed. Um, what makes you come up with something crazy like that? Well, it's hard to believe it's anything other than him coming back from the dead. Um, people worshiping Jesus. So really early on in the Christian church, we have all this evidence in the, in the earliest of scriptures of them worshiping Jesus. It's one thing to say he's a great rabbi um, or even he's a prophet, right? Even he's a Moses figure. I mean, Moses is as important as you can get in the Bible other than Jesus, right? And Moses is a big deal. Nobody ever considered worshiping Moses, right? But they're worshiping Jesus like really fast after he died. How the heck does that happen, right? Um, and all of the other major changes that happen um, to these Jews about their Jewish religion almost overnight, right? How do we explain all of that short of the resurrection? Um, N.T. Wright, again, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings and sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter a fantasy world of our own. So Wright argues, and I think it's pretty clear, that the idea that this was a made-up thing as a Christian wish fulfillment or to make money or um, because they wanted to become famous just doesn't make sense, right? They, why did they die for their lie? Um, why did they um, dramatically change everything they ever believed overnight? Um, something happened to make this Christian movement occur other than what normally happens when a revolutionary dies. Um, oh, okay. And then one last thing, just to throw out really quickly, um, uh, because I, I have heard people say, well, maybe it was a, a mass hallucination, right? That happens. Um, or I've even heard people say, well, maybe he was a ghost, right? And they saw a ghost, right? Which I don't believe in ghosts, but maybe whatever. Um, one of the challenges with this idea of groupthink or mass hallucinations or whatever is the variety of witnesses, right? So as Jim mentioned earlier, uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, which again is 15, 20 years after the events of Jesus' life, um, they reference not just the apostles, but at least 500 individuals who were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Um, 
And so, boy, that's a lot of people um, having a mass hallucination. But more importantly, there's all these different appearances of Jesus, right? To different groups of people at different times. So he shows up to the women at the tomb. Then later he shows up to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Then later he shows up in the upper room with the 10. And then later he shows up when Thomas is there and it's the 11. And then later he shows up to the 500. And then later he shows up to James, um, which is recorded in 1 Corinthians, even though it's not recorded in the Gospels. James, the brother of Jesus, not James the apostle. Um, and, and then uh, even later after that, he shows up to Paul, right? Uh, in a totally different way, but still shows up to Paul. Um, that's not how mass hallucinations work, right? It's, that's like we're all in this room and we convince ourselves we saw a space alien. Not over the course of you know different days and different weeks in a 40-day period, we all see Jesus different place. That's not mass hallucination, that's something else. Um, and, and that's not how groupthink works, right? You've got to be together for groupthink to happen. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I just mentioned, right, uh, Paul and James. Okay. Um, I think this is a really important idea for us as Christians um, when we talk about our faith to non-Christians uh, to be able to say, um, hey, you guys, you non-Christians have some good points, right? Like, I want to hear your ideas. I, I also struggle with the fact that why is there evil in the world? And I also struggle with the fact that, you know, why is there suffering in the world? And yeah, let's talk. Those are good points. Um, but what do you do about this? Because this is... This is a pretty powerful point that we have, right? How is it that the church came into being without a resurrection? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense any other way. Uh, and have you thought about that? Um, because this is how Peter preaches his first sermon and Paul preaches his first sermon. And um, like the, the message of the early church was not just God loves you and Jesus died for you, but he rose again from the dead. And because he rose again from the dead, you can believe and trust everything else he did. And everybody in the early church realized this was a wild, radical, intense thing that would cause some people to believe and some people to not believe and some people to want to hear more information. Um, but they kept proclaiming it because they thought it was true. Um, okay, uh, the, the very last thing I was going to say is um, it's not just the, the experience of the resurrected Jesus is not something that's limited to biblical times. Right? That for thousands of years, Christians have been claiming uh, to experience and know and meet Jesus. Now, um, my experience of Jesus is different than the experience of the disciples in the upper room on Easter Sunday. Of course it is. Right? Um, but I still believe that I've encountered like a living Jesus and not like a ghost or a dead guy or a happy memory, right? And so do, um, whatever, billions and billions of people on earth. Um, and uh, so the evidence continues. And I don't remember who said this, um, but it screams for an experiential test, right? By which I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, and if he's still alive today, and if not only did the disciples in the upper room experience him, but three years later, or whatever it was, Paul experienced him on the Damascus Road. And if we've experienced him in this life, why can't we ask people, hey, why don't you invite Jesus to show up in your life? Right? Because I think you, you know, modern, unbelieving person, have the same capacity to encounter God as I did. Um, I think Jesus is still alive. 
I think he might show up in your life if you ask him to. Why don't you try it? Right? Why don't you just make it an experiment and say, hey, Jesus, are you real? I'd love to know you. Uh, I believe he's probably going to show up. Um, so uh, this isn't just a, hey, it happened in the past story. This is a, it can happen in the present as well. Okay. Um, questions, comments, thoughts about the, the evidence for the resurrection? We explained it really well, is the thing. So you're all quiet. This is big to think about. It is big to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's worth mulling a little bit. Some mulling is good. Um, and I think it's really helpful, again, to look for that, um, you know, the old getting in somebody else's shoes, to imagine if you weren't a believer, how you might address this challenge, right, um, this problem, because it, it helps when we're in this conversation to say, oh, I do, I, that's an interesting point. Um, and I had thought about that, and here's, here's my response. Um, but I think sometimes the job of the Christian is simply to present evidence and say, you make a decision. Right? Uh, maybe you can come up with some other reason for explaining the birth of the church and everything that happened and why were people willing to die for their faith and whatever. But the one that makes the most sense to me is that he really did rise from the dead. And if you don't think that, well, what's your answer? Right? Yeah. Good ammunition. I encountered my hairdresser. Uh, don't look at me like that. That was singular. My hairdresser is singular. Oh, wow. Okay, come on, brother. I'm with you. Stay strong. <laughs> anyway, we got to talking, and, and now I can come back to the next week, uh, no, next month. And uh, then we talked about, he goes to a different church, and uh, we agreed, you know, uh, theologically on, on a lot of things. And, uh, but now I can ask him, hey, what do you think of the resurrection? Yeah. Then we go there. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's a good place to start. All right. Um, 35 minutes or less, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. You can go <laughs> wax or something. <laughs> um, hey, uh, next time we're together is not next week, because next week is Holy Week, so we've got worship on Thursday, worship on Friday, we'll come to those instead. Um, but we will meet on April 20th, and um, I wanted to do, uh, so I'm still trying to go through the list of topics that y'all picked out. And so one of the topics that was very popular was, can't we just be good moral people? Why do we need God and, and religion? Um, as, a, as a thing we get often asked as Christians, how do we respond to that? And related that as, a, as it's going to fit into that topic, I think, well, is, you know, how can a loving God send people to hell? Um, so that's what we'll talk about next time we're together, which is April 20th. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you chose to intervene in our world, not in a subjective way, but in an objective one. We're so thankful that you are the God of history. And that in history, you have worked and are working. Most of all, we recognize as we look forward to Palm Sunday and Easter the following week that the great story of our faith revolves around the death and resurrection of our Lord. And we thank you not only that that's true, but that 
Uh, the power of that truth can grab our hearts and grab others' hearts. And so we pray for those we know and love who are um, not yet followers of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to share that truth with them and invite them to come to know you more. And most of all, we thank you not only that you rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, but that you are still living today, and that you are the living Lord and the living Savior, and that you allow us to know you, even as Paul and others came to know you. And so thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being at work in our lives. And please keep showing up. In your name we pray. Amen.